The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague and partner in crime, Tim Foster. Good morning, Tim. How are you? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. Well, great. Our our guest today, Michael Weinstein, is the president of the LA-based AIDS Healthcare Foundation, a sprawling international nonprofit with the stated mission of providing its one and a half million global clients with, quote, cutting edge medicine and advocacy regardless of ability to pay, unquote. Uh, Mr. Weinstein is also the driving force behind several statewide ballot measures, including two previously failed attempts to implement statewide rent control. Um, Undeterred, he is back again this year with the new rent control measure on the November ballot. Uh, Now, this time he could also face a challenge of his own, a competing measure aimed at limiting his ability to use AHF funds for these other political campaigns. Um, he's graciously agreed to appear here today to talk about all of this with us. Uh, Mr. Weinstein, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. I'm just happy that it's not raining. Yeah, you know, we are too, actually. <laughs> but I probably you guys more than us. Southern California has really got pounded with this uh, set of storms. It was epic. Yes, yes, that's a good word for it. Well, let's jump right into it here because um, I have a couple questions right off. First of all, your ballot measure, the Justice for Renters Act, what exactly would the Justice for Renters Act do if voters endorse it this time around? And the second part of that question is, why do you think this time will be different than the previous two attempts, which were not successful? It's very, very simple. It's only 23 words long, and it basically says that the state will not prevent localities from enacting, maintaining, or expanding rent control. In 1995, a law was passed called Costa-Hawkins, which gave uh, the state the ability to prohibit uh, cities from expanding rent control. In that, that set a limit of 1995 by and large, but for cities that already had rent control, it froze it at whatever date they started. So in LA, it's 1978, for example. So we believe, first of all, that the root cause of the housing affordability crisis in California is that the rent is too damn high. And uh, secondly, you know that this is an issue that's better decided at the local level, that one size does not fit all for the state. And reason why we think um, that we have better chances because the situation has gotten so much worse, whether it's homelessness or just housing affordability, people are hurting very, very badly. And the state has poured tens of billions of dollars into the issue of homelessness and housing affordability, and it's had no effect because you can't sustain 10% a year increases. People's incomes are not rising at that level. Um, And so that's why, but also to understand us and and our point of view, we've been fighting for needle exchange for 37 years. And we've had successes and we've had had, uh, setbacks, right? Um, And I can talk more about that, but I mean, the point about it is we're not a political horse race, we're a movement. Housing affordability is a human right, social justice issue. Um, and we will continue to fight for it as long as it takes. Same way we're fighting for you know, universal health care and, and uh, uh, for many other issues. Well, you know, there are certainly those who contend that 
the methodology that you use to pay for these campaigns violates, if nothing else, the spirit of the law. Uh, that is what the I mentioned that there is a, a competing campaign that is pretty likely to be on the ballot as well. Uh, clearly, I know you disagree with that point of view. But, you know, what what do you say to the critics who say that this is not really an appropriate use of the funding that you get? And for those who don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you very legally buy the drugs that you supply to the to your clients at a, at a federally uh, endorsed discount. You then uh, are able to bill insurers at the full price for those. That That is how you make money. That is how you fund all of the things that you do. All of that is perfectly legal. Uh, again, there is a contention that maybe, though, that that is not the best use of these funds to be spending them on political campaigns. Please uh, give us your point of view here. Oh, first, let's be clear that the hundred plus million dollars that the that big real estate will spend at the California Apartment Association, which we affectionately call the California Anti-Tenant Association, the money that they have spent, all of that money will come from their ill-gotten gains from overcharging tenants for their rent. First of all, um, the reason that they're putting something on the ballot, they approached the attorney general, try to get them to investigate, right? To try to imply that there was something illegal or, or improper. And, and that was um, not successful, right? But um, to be clear, first of all, not $1 of the money we get in this discount comes from the government. The, the California Apartment Association is trying to, to obfuscate on that, right? But all of this money comes from drug companies, from discounts that we get from drug companies. But first of all, um, to give you a little bit of idea of the scope of our organization, um, we have a $2.6 billion budget. Um, we're in 46 countries. I, uh, to update you, we're at, at uh, more than 1.9 million clients worldwide. And 96 cents of every dollar of our budget goes uh, to patient care by audited financial statements. So. Uh, the money we spend sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, but it's it's small in comparison to our overall um, overall budget. But to understand where we're coming from on housing, let me just give you a little background. We started out as the AIDS Hospice Foundation, and we were giving people a home in the last days of their lives. Okay, um, so housing is not new to us. What motivated me personally to get involved in this issue was the outrage I felt at the indifference of the government towards people living with AIDS. I mean, people were literally dying in the hallways of the county hospital and we were just, all we could do was give them a dignified death. That's the activism, that, that's the outrage that ignited our movement. Myself and AHF, we feel the same way about homelessness and housing affordability, that it is a humanitarian crisis and it is an outrage that in the fifth largest economy in the world, among the richest cities in the world, that we have 77,000 people living on our streets. Okay? And when you're trying to address the issue of affordability and homelessness, you gotta go to the root cause. The root cause is that the rent is too damn high. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the press like the Los Angeles Times and others, you know, focus on AHF and our supposed uh, misdeeds, but they don't do anything in terms of looking into who are the people supporting CAA. It's a billionaire's boys club, right? It's Steve Schwartzman, it's Jeffrey Palmer, right? Um, and, um, and CAA and those billionaires 
they control the legislative process, right? I mean, when we dropped off 732,000 letters at the governor's office, right? governor's office referred us to Nathan Click, who was the person you interviewed, right? Who works for the governor and is the lead spokesperson for the no on rent control campaign, right? So the governor has outsourced his response to the opposition to our initiative. And that shows the influence and the power that they have. They pour you know, millions and millions of dollars every year into campaigns and into, and into lobbying, right? And they have a stranglehold on the legislature. Now, this is an interesting thing. Uh, as you were talking there, it really reminded me of the Prop 13 campaign of 1978, which was really sold to the public as keeping grandma in her house. Uh, you know, because because the rising property taxes, these, you know, poor elderly people were going to get, were not going to be able to afford to pay their property taxes and they were going to get evicted. And they said that this was basically happening. Uh, subsequently, journalists have tried to track how often that happened. And it was, from what I understand, I was not uh, involved in journalism in 1978, uh, but um, it was not really happening. I mean, it was extremely rare. However, at the same time, apartment owners were also included in that commercial property developers. And so it turns out that the folks that were running Prop 13 actually were involved. They were apartment owners. They were people who stood to make a great deal of money uh, by not having to have their property taxes go up because they own these commercial properties. And it's interesting that back then they were controlling the sort of the dialogue. And now you're saying that once again, they're controlling the dialogue. Um, I don't know. That's kind of a, just putting this all in perspective uh, that this is nothing new. What's new is 77,000 people living on the streets of Los Angeles, right? What's new is that um, a starting teacher, cop, a fire person is going to pay more than half of their income in rent, right? Um, that is new. What's new is a million people leaving California because they can't afford to live here, right? My first apartment in Los Angeles cost me $100 a month, right? Um, it was a great place to be poor, right? Um, and now a person who works full-time at a minimum wage job, their income is equal to the average cost of an apartment. That is unsustainable. Uh, Mr. Tornesty, you, you mentioned the LA Times, and I think, you know, we I have to address this because, you know, the Times has pointed out uh, some painted some pretty dark pictures of what some of the buildings that you own uh, around and by you I mean AHF around LA uh, they've painted a very dark picture of some of the conditions there and it has certainly led some of your critics to ask the question why don't you use the money you're going to spend on this latest ballot measure to do more improvements around those buildings or to provide better services for the people who live in those units. You know, what do you say to people who say that maybe you could use your funding better by taking care of the buildings? Sure. First of all, I'll say that the building they focused on, we bought for $8 million and we've spent $6 million on it, right? Um, when, when we provided hospice care to dying AIDS patients uh, in Los Angeles, or when we first treated um, patients who did not have access to life-saving treatment in Africa, um, uh, we, we, we dove into the toughest possible problems. And we did the same thing in Skid Row. The perfect cannot be the enemy of the good. We're taking 100-year-old buildings and repurposing them, right? And we're spending 
Uh, we, we've spent $233 million in the last six years buying and rehabbing these buildings. That's one thing. Um, second thing is, is that the source material for the Times article are ambulance chasing lawyers who are suing AHF. But I'll say that, um, and when we were asked to comment on those articles, we were sent completed articles and asked to comment on them, right? Um, and we were among the first and boldest to say that the LA Times coverage is slanted, right? And uh, most people say, you know, don't uh, criticize people who buy ink by the barrel, okay? And it's interesting that in, in incredibly short order, what we've been saying about the LA Times has been proven by the fact that, you know, executive editor left exactly because he said that the publisher was slanting the coverage. And that's been reinforced by the top four people leaving the LA Times. And now whatever uh, pretense there was about a separate separation between the editorial pages and the reporting has now been removed by virtue of the fact that the same person now runs, runs both. But the bottom line is, is that this is a very messy business, right? To get involved in, in Skid Row. And I mean, first of all, um, we take the clients in at $400 a month with their baggage, literally and figuratively, okay? Not only has, has the LA Times run these stories about us, they've run it about every Skid Row provider criticizing them, right? Um, so if we're gonna attack the Skid Row providers who are trying their best to do something, where are we going to be? The thing that we have said over and over and over again is, Adaptive reuse is the best way. It is the low-hanging fruit to address homelessness in California, right? That we have to use existing buildings. You cannot get a shovel in the ground for a new project in Los Angeles or San Francisco in less than five years, and it's going to cost you between $700,000 and a million dollars. We cannot address the homeless crisis that way. We have to use the available buildings. And when you take a 100-year-old building, you know, six people die of... Um, on the streets of Los Angeles every single day, homeless people, right? Okay, we're taking those people off the street. The SROs, the single room occupancy hotels are the lowest rung on that ladder. And you know, this is fodder. The LA Times, these articles are fodder for the real estate interests. But I'm incredibly proud of the investment we've made. I'm incredibly proud of the staff that works in these buildings. And what we've done is, we ran a full page ad in the LA Times inviting anybody and everybody to come and look for themselves. Did anyone actually take you up on that? Well, interestingly enough, multiple reporters have made multiple visits from the LA Times, okay, to our buildings long before they wrote those articles, right? And never published an article and never actually reported what they saw. So, you know, um, you can judge for yourself you know, what their motivation is. But also the other thing we pointed out again, which is very, uh, takes a lot of guts to do was we pointed out that the lead reporter for the LA Times on these matters is a crony of the real estate interest. He routinely, and again, this is a problem with journalistic ethics. He routinely leads workshops for big real estate, right? That was unheard of in the past. I mean, he, he's a dyed in the wool uh, gimby and he's made that, you know, crystal clear. I mean, we, I gave the former executive editor a tour. And when several of these articles came out, I asked him if that's what he saw. I mean, but I don't put that responsibility on him since, you know, these decisions would be made by, by the uh, publisher. 
Um, but in any case, I mean, bottom line is, is that we have 1,417 people who have been brought in off the street. Um, the overwhelming majority of them are very happy with the places um, that they have to live in. They're safe, they're clean, they're well-staffed. Um, and we have um, about 500 more in the pipeline. And since that time, we have purchased and begun rehab on multiple other buildings. There have been some questions, though, about evictions and particularly uh, maybe being done in a heavy handed way. Now, I'm, I'm going to presume you also don't agree with the L.A. Times and others description of how that has been handled. But please make clear for folks listening to this how the eviction process works for you, because I know that the that your tenants, these are, these are non-subsidized. And I think that's an important distinction to make here. These are not Section 8 housing. You're not getting government money here. This is, you, you do expect the people who live in these uh, buildings to be able to pay even the $400 a month is in LA, I will agree with you, is shockingly low. So I will absolutely concede that to you, but you do expect them to be able to pay that, correct? Yeah, to be clear, I mean, first of all, everyone who uh, comes into our buildings has a source of income adequate to pay their rent. The, the the COVID situation really, really set things back very, very far because people just got in the habit of not paying their rent, right? Um, so 100% of the tenants um, have been given the opportunity to pay going forward. And, um, you know, we've only really uh, uh, done addressed this with people who had uh, very large balances, many of whom, some of whom had never, ever paid any rent, okay? But also, um, several of the evictions have to do with people who are violent, right, um, and have committed violence against other tenants. And one thing that's really difficult for us as a landlord is the fact that even when we have affected an eviction based upon, you know, an act of violence or threatened violence, getting the uh, sheriff's department to lock them out is very, very time consuming. We had one incident where, where a person was shot and it still took us a very, very long time. Actually, we never got them uh, removed. They, they were in jail. You know, if you want to um, have an impact on all the homelessness in this situation, you have to be willing to take on the toughest battles. And that's what AHF has done throughout its entire history. I mean, when we set up treatment for people in Africa, um, we started in a shed in Uganda. We started between a mortuary and a traditional healer in South Africa. And we could only do care for 100 patients in each location because the care, I'm sorry, the drugs cost 500000 sorry, $5,000 per patient per year. We had to battle through our advocacy to get it down now to $75, right? I mean, that's the level of uh, commitment that we have. You know, to be clear, the CAA is sponsoring an initiative um, aimed at destroying AIDS Healthcare Foundation by removing our tax exempt status by removing our licenses, right? That would consign more than 10,000 HIV patients and tens of thousands of STD patients in California to search for care and possibly get sicker or die as a result, okay? And um, also to say, you know, HF has, you know, 7,600 employees around the world, right? We are a highly successful organization. We're very proud of that. Uh, we did that the right way by working hard and by devoting ourselves um, to our mission. And, you know, CAA has never dealt with anybody like us, right? Because um, 
we are committed activists, but we also have the resources and the ability to fight back. And, you know, again, I'm extremely uh, proud of that. Well, I want to I want to be clear, though, on that point, because the ballot measure would require you to spend 98 percent of of your of your profit from the from the drug aspects of your business uh, on that, as opposed to any campaign measures. That is when you could potentially lose your nonprofit status. Correct. Am I stating that correctly? No. Based on their definition, it doesn't even include rent or utilities. Right. It, it is impossible. It is a poison pill. It is impossible to satisfy those requirements. But also, the measure is unconstitutional. It is again, there's a thing called the Bill of Attainder that's in both the US and California constitutions. And there's a specific provision that was put into the California constitution to prevent initiatives to be targeted at one party. So we are in the courts right now, in the Superior Court, Sacramento, and we will fight hard you know, uh, to remove it from the ballot or if it gets on the ballot to have it declared unconstitutional. But I don't think you can back away from the fact that, you know, we are the largest AIDS organization in California. AIDS Healthcare Foundation has led the battle against AIDS in California for 37 years. So we ask the people of California to decide whether you trust the AIDS Healthcare Foundation um, and its mission, or you trust California Apartment Association, you know, the California Anti-Tenant Association more. I mean. We've done a lot of polling, okay? Um, CAA and the, and the landlord group are, are reviled by the vast majority of Californians. So what they're trying to do is have a chilling effect. If they are successful in what they're doing, what's to stop another organization from doing the same thing against Planned Parenthood or against other advocacy groups, right? I mean, using, see, they don't want a fair fight about rent control. They want to, have us have to spend money and energy you know, fighting an initiative uh, that's going to have a tremendous chilling effect on uh, advocacy of any kind. They already have a huge advantage, right, of being able to raise an unlimited amount of money. It's not a fair fight. So I know you've been trying to get the governor's uh, support here. Um, it has not really been forthcoming. He's either Neutrality, a police- actually. We don't expect his support because he was the face of the no campaign in both of the previous efforts, right? That's that's what we're trying to get him not to do. Well, yes, I, I, I you, and you're right. Uh, that that's a really fair correction. Uh, him because it really matters. It really matters with with a governor if if the governor supports, opposes, or as you say, just stays neutral. That's a really big deal. Now you've also, you know, got criticized for for a letter you sent to him where you paid some. Uh, signature gatherers. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of this. I think the criticism that comes at you is uh, about transparency or about use of funds. You know, you you have been very vocal saying this is how democracy works. You know, maybe talk about that a little bit and why, you know, you're willing to, to do whatever that takes to to get the governor, as you say, either to be neutral I, I'm sure you'd prefer his support, but at least to stay neutral in this in this particular fight. Why is that so important for you? First of all, let's be clear that the governor's, you know, Jim DeBoo, chief counsel to the governor, works for CAA. Uh, Nathan Click, who's a spokesperson for the governor, works for CAA. Um, I mean, um, he has, has gotten boatloads of money from CAA, right? 
And so he's he's carrying their agenda, right? Um, but as far as transparency goes, first of all, CAA is not listing their contributors on, on their when they run these ads, right? Now they have a front group that they put the money in that and then they transfer it to this because the, these billionaire landlords don't want their name on the ads. Okay, so let's be, you know, we're completely transparent. Just to be clear, we have a yearly audit that we're required to do that's open to the public. Uh, you can look at our 990 on, on, on the websites, et cetera. So we have had complete um, transparency. When you look at our clientele, the client satisfaction, we have enormous loyalty. You don't attract more than 1.9 million clients to you on a worldwide basis if you're not serving their needs, right? They get to vote with their feet, right? Um, and so, you know, uh, and, and part of what CAA is trying to do is trying to obfuscate about the fact that trying to call it government money. They know it's not government money. They know that. It, it, this is 100% drug company money, that, that these discounts. And the federal law is very clear that that money can be used for um, purposes that nonprofits deem appropriate. And again, it's a small percentage. It's a large amount of money. I don't deny that whatsoever, but it's a small percentage of our total uh, budget for the organization. But, you know, these big money interests that control Newsom and the legislature, like oil and gas, like the drug companies, like the landlords, right? Uh, we have, unfortunately, you know, we're in a situation where um, because we have such a super majority in California, there's no checks and balances, right? So, um, they get to, you know, purchase the influence of, of the Democrats here in California, and we can't even get a hearing in the legislature about these bills, right? And so, um, and you know, Newsom, you know, wants to have an image of a progressive, but when it comes to single payer healthcare, which he pledged to do, he's he's bailed on that. When it comes to the gas and oil leases, he's fudged on that. And the reality is, of the last few years, that we've poured these tens of billions of dollars you know, into these uh, homeless programs, these housing programs, and, it, and homelessness and the housing crisis has gotten worse. If you, go, if, you, if you wanna get to the root of the problem, the rent is too damn high. You cannot have, it's not sustainable. You cannot have people paying half of their income in rent, okay? And also let's be clear about what's happened in California. After the financial crisis in 2008, there was a takeover by corporate real estate, okay? The people who were foreclosed on what they, um, those were bought up by the Blackstones uh, uh, and uh, Stephen Schwartzman, right? And then they rented those houses back to the people who they had foreclosed on, right? Um, and uh, also, you know, to be clear, housing um, cannot just be treated like a commodity. It's a necessity. I mean, what does it say about our society that in one of the richest cities in the world, that we can't keep people housed. And, and when you have the power structure, the governor and others siding with um, the big corporate landlords, you're never gonna solve the problem that way. Do you have any uh, support at the legislative level? I know some of our legislators in Sacramento are extraordinarily progressive. Uh, thinking of Alex Lee uh, right off the bat. Um, and I'm wondering if it, you've had any conversations with any of them and they're supportive of your efforts or- Sure, I mean- um, And also if there's any city council people or, or folks, other elected officials who've kind of backed your movement. Sure, I mean, um, 
First of all, uh, we had the LA City Council and the county, LA County Board of Supervisors uh, supporting when we had the initiative three years ago. Um, we have um, the endorsement of Alex Lee. Um, we're still early in the process, but we um, Maxine Waters is an endorser. Uh, the labor icon, Dolores Huerta is an endorser. Uh, ben Allen is a supporter. Um, I mean, we'll have many, many more. Um, we've had the Democratic Party endorsement, both of our previous efforts. Um, we had over 500 organizations supporting us the last time around. And I'll tell you, every single poll shows that 70 plus percent of Californians support rent control, right? The way that they won the last time was uh, by confusing people. I mean, I was on texts and phone calls with people. They said, yes, I'm supporting you. I'm voting no, right? I mean, uh, and um, when you have, you know, when you aerial bombard with $100 million, you know, that's what you're capable of doing, right? So the smart money is always to bet on the people who spend the most money, right? Um, but um, situation has changed dramatically. So those, I don't know why it's a big deal about paying people to collect signatures. I don't know why they think that's a big talking point, okay? But, um, but the reality of the matter is that 732,000 people signed a letter asking the governor not to oppose uh, uh, this initiative. And, um, and we're contacting them, right? That's, we have a base of now going into this uh, election of hundreds of thousands of people who think the rent is too damn high. The other thing is we've been running a campaign, uh, you, may, you may have seen it um, uh, online, and um, it's just multiple people saying, where will I live? That's what it's come down to. Where will I live? How, how will a person on disability live in California? How will a person on social security live in California? How will a person with a family live in California? Get back to the crux of the actual uh, ballot measure. Can you talk about how this compares to other states? Do other states have their equivalents of cost Hawkins or is California more unique? Many states have it. This was a national campaign by corporate real estate that went into effect in the 90s. Uh, many people have it. Okay. Um, and uh, and it's very difficult to get it repealed. But, you know, the last time we tried to get around all of the bogus concerns that the um, that CAA had, and we did that by exempting new real estate and having different technical language, okay? And then after giving them what they wanted in those areas, they used it against us, right, to confuse people. So we, it's really simple. This initiative is 23 words long, right? All it comes down to is that the state will not pass laws that will, um, you know, uh, limit what cities and counties can do to, to enact, maintain, or expand rent control. We don't want to keep you too long, but I, I have to ask, what happens if this doesn't succeed? We'll keep going. I mean, we'll go, we'll, we'll go on as long as it takes. Um, you know, but just to be clear, I mean, people, I mean, it was mentioned on the previous uh, podcast about losses that we've under that we've suffered at the ballot box. So let me just sort of be clear on our track record in that regard. Okay. The last time around, there was a bill called 1482, which was which put a it was a rent gouging bill. Okay. Um, because we had our bill, our initiative on the ballot, CAA said we will support this. The only reason we're supporting it is to forestall the rent control initiative. And as inadequate as that is, at 10%, more than people can pay, it got us somewhere along the way, right? That's one thing. Um, second of all, we sponsored ballot initiative on drug pricing, right? Um, and now you see that 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 moving, you know, across the, the uh, country and around the world. Um, we passed an initiative in San Francisco for drug pricing initiative there. 
we've got a, a, a health commission enacted in Los Angeles. Uh, we didn't have to take it to the ballot. We got a, a condom initiative enacted in Los Angeles County. But more, most importantly, our movement started with an initiative to quarantine people who are HIV positive in 1986, Prop 64. That's how our, our movement began, um, which was going to pass and was overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly defeated. But when the legislature won't even give a hearing to bills on tenant protection, what other choice do we have than to go to the voters? But again, there's no um, a date stamp on tenant rights, right? There's no expiration date on the humanitarian crisis that we're suffering with. So, you know, um, and again, everything that's been done up until now, which does not get at the root causes, is like chopping the weeds off at the top. It's not going to do the job. If you, I mean, we are, we have a, an eviction, um, a homelessness machine, which is allowing landlords to, um, you know, continue to raise uh, rents beyond the increases in, in income that people have. And they're, again, they're fighting these corporate landlords who are, who are the board members and the donors to CAA are hiding behind the mom and pop landlords, right? The, first of all, all of the laws regarding rent control guarantee a return, you know, uh, to landlords, right? But, you know, it comes down to a choice. We either are going to um, let the these corporate landlords rule the roost and continue to degrade the quality of life in California, or the people are going to take the power into their own hands and pass our measure. But, you know, there's no limit on how long and how hard we will advocate for protection for tenants and for rent control. I'm sorry, I, I do have to ask you one more thing. I, I think I intimated that was a lot, of, but uh, I think, you know, because we we hear so much about you personally, you know, I've, I've seen you described as polarizing and pugilistic and, you know, a lot of other things. Um, what this comes across to me is being very personal. You're clearly very passionate about this issue. So um, if you don't mind my asking, you know, why are you so passionate about this particular issue? What is the driving force for you personally behind the, these efforts? Oh, I um, was a baby activist in civil rights and the anti-war movement uh, in Brooklyn, where I grew up uh, from a really, really early age. I mean, I was I was raised in a tradition of social justice. I've been involved in many, many, many issues. Um, I love Los Angeles. I love California. You know, I came here to live because it really suited me and I've sunk roots here, you know, and um, I believe it could be a much better place than it is. It can't just be a home for the rich. I mean, that's not what California is. Um, so I feel like I'm fighting in defense of a place that I love, but also, um, yeah, it hurts my heart deeply to see the suffering. And, and it's not an abstraction for me. So many of our patients don't have a place to live or, or, or are you know, doubled and tripled up. Um, we have a multitude of employees who have to travel an hour and a half to get to work. I mean, it's something, it's wrong. I mean, that's the bottom line is, I mean, I guess the question is not why am I so passionate about this, but why are the people we elect as leaders so indifferent? And why are they so wedded to uh, these special interest groups that they, they, you know, I mean, now that he's not running, he can't run again. I mean, why is um, Newsom beholden to uh, 
to these people. I mean, these are really, really bad people. I mean, Stephen Schwartzman was the highest paid executive in the United States, right? I know Blackstone is a vulture, right? Uh, you know, Jeffrey Palmer is, uh, you know, a ultra MAGA, you know, Republican, you know. I don't know if that helps explain it, but, you know, a lot of the people who don't understand me or who, or who condemn me have never met me. Um, they've never toured our buildings. They've never visited our sites. So this is a an open invitation to anybody who hears this podcast and wants to know more uh, to come and see for themselves. How do they how do they get a hold of someone to do that, by the way? Well, they can contact our communications department or they can go to our website. The, the if you go to um housingishumanright.org or, or justiceforrenters.org, you can get information about taking the tour. But we ran a full page ad in the LA Times saying, come and see for yourself. Got nothing we'll, we'll put a link, uh, we'll put a link to that in the podcast notes here too. I've given that tour to Bernie Sanders. I've given it to, to uh Karen Bass. I've given it to the city attorney uh in um, Los Angeles. I've, I've given it to many of state legislators, et cetera. So, you know, uh, they've seen with their own eyes. Well, uh, Michael Weinstein, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, I, I grilled you a little hard on some of these questions, but I think these are, you, you know, these are questions that people have. I appreciate the fact that you uh, faced up to every one of them and answered them uh, very well. So I really, uh, we do greatly appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate the effort. I appreciate and, the opportunity. And it's clear that you're passionate about this and that it, you know, it means a lot to you. Thank you. Take care. Well, we'll be back uh, shortly with who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Well, thanks again to Michael Weinstein of the AIDS uh, Healthcare Foundation for coming on the show today. Uh, of course, now it's time, as always, for us to switch to who had the worst week in California politics? Uh, I'm going to be going solo on this one. Tim had to step away for a bit. So uh, I've got a couple of candidates that I think uh, fit the bill. Let's, uh, I guess, if you're paying attention at all to the elections, which of course we all are, uh, one of the big questions is whether or not Democrats are going to retake the House in the coming November elections. But of course, first we got to get to the primaries. And right now, one of the big question marks is who will be representing California con Congressional District 22, which is currently held by Republican David uh, Vallado. Hope I said that right, Vallado. Um, if I didn't, I apologize to all all people concerned. Um, right now, the big Democratic challengers are former State Assembly Member Rudy Salas and current California State Senator Democrat Melissa Hurtado. Of course, now Salas has come close on this before, looked to be the favorite, and then Melissa Hurtado got into the race. And this is causing a lot of heartburn for uh, Democrats here in California who think there maybe is a real uh, possibility that they're going to get completely shut out uh, after the primary and and uh, in the runoff will end up being two Republicans, uh, current representative, of course, David Bellotto, and then uh, uh, his challenger, whose name uh, escapes me now, Chris Mathis. Sorry, it took me a second to remember his name. Sorry again to the Mathis campaign. Um, so I would say maybe who's having the worst week there is all the leadership of the state Democratic Party, who would, would dearly love to not see this internal fight spill over into something that locks them out of 
the general election in a race they really believe they can win, and which a lot of national observers believe could be the key to Democrats retaking the House. So that's to be determined. I would say there, that's, that is the uh, runner-up candidate. And who is the finalist candidate? Well, again, if you've been paying attention to Congress, we, in fact, we even talked about this recently on Worst Week. Uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, there was, of course, the Republicans were attempting to impeach him. That effort failed uh, a week or so ago. Then this week, well, they managed to get the votes. And how they got the votes this time on a 214 to 213 count was San Gabriel Valley Representative Judy Chu was not able to be there. She was not able to be there because she got COVID. And because she had COVID and could not be there, she, the Dems didn't have the votes to block uh, the impeachment process. And so uh, Alejandro Mayorkas was impeached. Now, nobody expects that the Senate is going to convict and he will be removed from office. Uh, you know, here in our deeply polarized times, this feels like yet just another one of those Um I won't use the term I was about to use. I was about to use something you can't say on the air. Let's just say the the um, ongoing finger pointing that seems to pass for uh, congressional action in this day and age. Um, but the reason I would say Judy Chu maybe is having the worst week, even above Mayorkas, is that uh, she was suddenly in line for a whole lot of public criticism for not being there for the vote, even though she had COVID. But apparently a lot of people felt she should have um, somehow sucked it up and come in and found a way to, to make the vote, which you know, that was not really possible. But ultimately, um, then many other people ultimately had to come to her defense and, you know, and her record, et cetera, et cetera, which, again, just another example of how polarized we are now. I mean, I don't know what people expect, but apparently having COVID is not a good enough excuse to miss a vote on something like this. So uh, for that reason alone. I would say Alejandro Mayorkas definitely maybe had the worst week, uh, most weeks. But uh, Representative Judy Chu, you're going to you're going to take the crown this week uh, for having the temerity to get sick. Right. Apparently when you, that's never allowed anymore. So anyway, that's been our show. Again, thanks to Michael Weinstein. Thanks again to my colleague, Tim Foster. Uh, I am Capital Weekly Editor in Chief Rich Eisen. Uh, this has been the Capital Weekly Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California.